you will never know what you don't know you don't know if you're not willing to be vulnerable. And as a result, without vulnerability, you will never move forward. Now that gets their attention, right? Because I will sit with a classroom of 18 year olds and I'll say to them, okay, in this room, and I might have, you know, a bunch of top coaches in the room and so on and so on. I'd say to them, how much of all the knowledge that exists in the world about triathlon is in this room right now? You know, and I'll draw the pie chart on the wall and I'll say that, you know, this is what we know we know. All right. And then when they start realizing this huge amount of stuff that we don't know that we don't know, and that's where all of our progress lies, then they get a little quieter and then they go, oh, wait a minute. So now I understand what vulnerability is. If I'm not open to knowing which part of that is admitting that I don't know, you know, then you get at the heart of vulnerability as opposed to saying, wait, I'm not vulnerable, I'm tough and I'm this and I'm that, you know? And it's an education thing more than it's, uh, I think most people are willing to be vulnerable if they understood what it meant. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and this show was founded with a purpose to share stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose. As yogis, we understand purpose as dharma, or our true calling, what we were put here to do. And today's guest, with over 40 years of coaching experience, is most certainly doing what he was put on this earth to do. Bobby McGee was born in South Africa and went to university to study and become a coach. He started his coaching career, coaching middle and long distance track runners, later went on to coach road runners and marathoners. Over the past four decades, he has supported athletes of all levels, including Olympians, top ranked ITU triathletes, world-class runners from 800 meter to ultra marathons, world record holders, world champions, and age groupers from triathlon to race walking and everything in between. He served as development coordinator for USAT for a number of years, identifying the next generation of elite athletes. Bobby is renowned for his skills in assisting athletes to find their optimal running form and is well sought out after in the field of mental training. In 2002, he started Bobby McGee Endurance Sports and shortly thereafter hired BJ to create his website through our then business, Karen Marketing. And so now here we sit on either end of the microphone with someone who we connected with almost 20 years ago, which reminds us all that there are no mistakes in this life and that everyone that crosses your path is there for a reason. It's difficult to encapsulate the wealth of knowledge of our guest today. So instead of going on and on about Bobby, we prefer to dive right into the conversation and open the floodgates for the benefit of all. Bobby McGee, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I can't believe it's been that long. I know. It's wild. And it's it's so, you know, I touched upon it in the intro about mindset training. And I'm a mindset coach now. And here, almost 20 years ago, we've got magical running, like in a, one of your books, like in our house, BJ's working on your website. And, uh, and then to see, you know, a couple decades later where we all are. And uh, as you know, we've been We've known you for a while. We've been following you for a while. You pop up in the lives of many of our podcast guests over these last five, six years of having the podcast. 
But I think where I'd like to jump in today, and I've already touched upon it, is really this foundational piece that I think we all agree upon, which is mindset training, like our mental state. Because I've heard you, um, I've heard you talk about how well, I'm going to paraphrase here, right? Like it doesn't matter if you have the most perfect running form in the world. If you don't have the right attitude, we're never going to find satisfaction or or happiness in, in what it is that we're doing in this life. You know, that's that's such a true point. I was just, I'm just working on a, uh, on a not a new concept, but I'm working on uh, something called the thrive mentality. And, uh, you know, Early early days with uh, the the U- United States Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee, working with them, this realization that you know you can have all the fitness in the world, you can have all the talent in the world, you can have all the skill in the world, but without the mental skills, those will never come to fruition. The opposite is of course true. If you don't have the talent, you know uh, it doesn't matter how good your mental skills are. You, you're never going to be a world beater, but you will always know that you're accessing the best you can be if you have that that correct mindset. So you know, as I said, my current thing that I'm really excited with and I'm creating a program is something that uh, you know both Stephen Kotler and uh, you know, um, the, the, the guys that, uh, that work on the flow state or this mm-hmm. realization, um, and I learned this concept from uh, Nassim Taleb, the, uh, the futures trader who wrote those amazing books like The Black Swan, where there's this state of anti-fragility as opposed to being tough or being robust or being strong or being gritty, that there's a state beyond that where you metabolize you metabolize pressure, you metabolize stress, and that's that's where you perform because you want that. You cannot perform if it's not tough, if it's not difficult, because that's actually the food of performance for the very, very great athletes. And so that's that's the area in terms of mental skills that I've been focusing on quite a bit lately. And so when I think about the flow state, the, the you know, the definition that comes to me is, you know, merging our awareness with activity, right? So we're completely in the activity. And then of course, is and we I experience this often mm-hmm. with meditation, my meditation practice. As soon as you realize you're in the flow state, or as soon as I realize like, oh, I'm doing it, I'm meditating, you're no longer meditating, right? It's like as soon as you bring that thought life into the action of what you're doing, it's gone. Yeah, for triathletes, I always explain that as you have this utopian place where, where you're on the bike and you're looking at the power and you're looking at um, uh, you're looking at your heart rate and you're looking at you know that, that level of output. And the minute you realize you've achieved that dream state of performance, the power is perfect, you know, and the heart rate is perfect, and and uh, then you lose it, right? So either the power goes down or the heart rate goes up, one of the two. You know, and I think with Olympic athletes, uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Peter Haberl, the head sports psychologist with the USOPC, he always speaks about the, that when when you do mindfulness work, that the athletes tend to gravitate towards physical mindfulness. Right? They prefer walking mild f- mindfulness, 
to, say, breathing mindfulness, right? So whatever that meditation state is. But I think the big thing that holds most people back is that competitive nature that they try and bring into meditation or they try and bring it in for mindfulness, right? That you're trying to do better. You only hang on for 30 seconds and you criticize yourself, right? And then for those athletes to go to the next place where you judge the judgments, where you know that the purpose of your brain is to produce thoughts, and that your highest level is to be able to observe those thoughts, then you suddenly go to that place where you go, oh, wait a minute, everything that happens was supposed to have happened, and the heart rate comes down, and the breathing slows down, and you can truly become an observer. And that backs the research up, right? So any of this research that they've done on the treadmill or they've done on the ERG, where you shift people's focus around, and when you shift their their focus to highly... Um, impersonal or highly objective self-observation, fly-on-the-wall stuff, their economy states reach the highest states they can possibly reach. Mm. And then with the lead-in to Tokyo, all this stuff of Kotler's, right, of hacking the flow state, going to the point of even more than that, you know, how do you generate dopamine? Because that's your fuel, right? So that, that that's your most economical place. And and uh, to me, the two answers are the voluntary nature of, of sport, right? We want to do this, right? So there's no enemy, there's no warfare, there's no bullets flying, there's no, there's no reason to be tough. You chose to do this. You know, you ask a second grader, if it's hurting at mile 16 off the bike, what would you do? Well, you stop or you slow down or you just say, this is stupid. Why would I do this to myself? But nobody does that, right? But then you want somehow want a badge afterwards, right? You want some sort of a medal because you were tough out there. But wait a minute, you put yourself out there. And when you start realizing that this is the one place on the planet that you actually want to be at this moment in time, everything works. It's kind of flipping that around because I think we get we get so caught up in what you're talking about, which is you know the paces, the watts, the the end time, um, everything that's in the future, and we forget about actually the experience that's happening right in front of us. Like we we signed up for the race, we you know we're undertrained or overtrained, whatever it is, we forget that we need to have an experience. We need to get through this moment right now, and then this one, and then the next one. And what happens when what I see with some athletes is we get so like into the future, like what are people going to think about my race results? Uh, what are they going to think if they see me walking, you know, if they see a walking on the a tracker or whatever, and all that stuff is outside of us. It's completely outside. Yep. Yep. It's, it's the beautiful thing, right? Where I tried to distinguish for athletes, right? What happened? What did the fly on the wall see? All right, you swam X amount, you rode X amount, you run X, ran X amount. These are the data details about what you did. This is what the weather conditions were. This is what this was. This is what that was. Okay, that's that part of the conversation. The next part of the conversation is what you've just referred to, right? What are you making it mean? All right, this is what happened. What are you making it mean? Because the only place you can change is in terms of what you're making you mean. You go back there and say, why did I, uh, you know, attribute this meaning to that performance or that part of the race? And was it the most useful thing to do? And, you know, what other meaning can you attribute it to, right? So it's basically regression therapy. You go down to the point where 
to the point where the where the bad thing happened and you rewrite the bad thing because the bad thing is only what you did. So this new research, and I've had some of my athletes do this, which is fantastic, right? If they've had a bike crash and they're afraid to get back on the bike, especially in ITU racing and that kind of thing, they have this new approach, which I've forgotten what the name of it is now. A good friend of mine in town does it does it for me, and he's got all the formal training. But they designed it for PTSD um, soldiers, you know, that came out of Iraq. Um, and it's this question of, of moving through the sequence of events that led to the trauma and then picking up, you use a sud scale, right, where the emotion starts to flare up and then you pick it up again. You skip that part and you pick it up again when when the occasion is over, right? You've had the bike crash. Next thing you know is you woke up in hospital, whatever the case might be. Now you continue forward and you run this like a movie, like a third-person kind of approach, Right. And you just get closer and closer so that the the issue gets smaller and smaller. And as soon as it starts to bother you, you step out of it again, right? Because that's creating the problems. And with that kind of process, you get to a point where, where, where it all becomes that objective, neutral observation. And you can start distinguishing where you attributed meaning, where there was no meaning, right? Because that's the whole purpose of this stuff, right? Doing a triathlon gives us purpose, gives us meaning, and we attribute whatever it is to it. Whether it's some magical story about somebody who was addicted to some substance and used triathlon to get over it or used running to get over it, or it's somebody that just has a pile of talent and just wants to do well, it's the same journey, right? It's the same journey. And if you look at all the great philosophies and all the great sort of ascetic religions, right? Either the marathon monks of Japan, but there's always this deprivation, right? Deprivation of freshness in triathlon, deprivation of food, deprivation of fluid, deprivation of sleep. All of those things lead us to this coalface. And I think that that's the big kicker with these long triathlons, right? You get transported to the coalface of who you are and you get an opportunity to figure it out, right? And so that fits in with Hinduism or whatever, but it's all about figuring out who you are. And this is just an escalated format in which you can get to do that, right? Yeah, I, I remember I early on, I just want, and I think a lot of people have this feeling, they just want to be done. They, they want to fast forward and, and get through get through the experience as quickly as possible or step away from it but when i shifted into i'm embracing everything that is presented to me in this endurance event this 10 to 17 hour race things became less stressful things became i got less anxious and i got less chaotic it became more fruitful more uh joyous more uh craving of having another experience like that and i'm not painting the picture like oh my god he must have had blissful moments, you know, throughout the entire race. But I had moments where they actually, I learned so much about the way that I'm thinking and moving. And I took that into multiple races. And now it's been years and years stacked upon experiences. And I keep having experiences based on neutrality, not, not trying to label it one thing or the other, but labeling it as really what can I learn from what's happening right now? Not exactly, resisting. Yeah. You don't have to do triathlons, right? You can just have kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you get the same kind of thing. Uh, it, it, it really is amazing. I've been really privileged to work with a lot of talent 
in various stages of their development. I was a high school coach and I've worked with, you know, the the talent identification part of triathlon. And then I've worked at the very top end with, with, with the more elite athletes. And of late, what I've done with the younger athletes, those looking for scholarships and coming out of school and in their first or their second year of being pros, is just this simple realization, listen, believe me that these are the times of your life. These are the times of your life. Don't wish them past, you know, don't rue bad races. You know, these are the times of your life. You're probably going to tell more stories about your bad races than you're going to tell about your good races, right? (laughs) And I think it's really this ability that we have, that every human has to deepen our relationship with the present moment, with what is happening right now and who we are in response to what is happening. And I think when we get to look at that, when we get that view inside, then we can decide I like how I'm responding. I don't like how I'm responding. It's not serving my goals. It's not serving my family. It's not serving my career. And then we, we've we got free will, right? We have free will. The only thing we have control over is our response. And yeah. um, piggybacking on what you were saying earlier, I had, and I'm sure you've had these moments. I think we've all have. Anybody who's interested in in, you know, the power of the mind has had these moments where you hear something and it's just like everything shifts in that moment and you never look at things the same. And I remember I was in a yoga class and the yoga teacher said, you know, he had us in this hold and it was lots of sensation in the body, burning quads. It was hot in the room, like a lot of, you know, impulses to get out of the pose. And he just said, everything is inherently neutral until we label it until we give it meaning. And that giving it meaning, that giving it a label, that is us using our free will. So as far as like, we have to be present and able to to be able to see that. And I found that, and maybe you'll agree with this, but I found that a common piece that I've seen with the professional athletes, the people at the top, the pointy end of the field, that they have this ability to really be focused in that present moment. But for those who have trouble being in the present moment, meaning having an experience independent of all the commentary that's still going to happen, how do you guide people into deepening that relationship with presence? Hmm, Good question. You know, it's a lifelong search for for all of us individually as well. So as you started speaking, the first thing that came to mind was in the last play that he did, Sir Laurence Olivier did did the play Time, right? And he, he says this line in his inimitable voice, right? He says this line, the only thing that we have absolute control over is our attitude, you know, and that line like he says it just hangs in my head right and then I'm not sure who said this but I think it was Nietzsche who said all of man's problems arise from their inability to accept what is so and so if you go with that that line of teaching right that it's all empty and meaningless and we fill it and we give it meaning right that you can now take it into into our sport right and so this thing shows up And this thing in and of itself, whatever it is at whatever point in the race, is empty and meaningless. Now you have a filter, right? Now you can say, okay, 
what meaning am I going to give this? You know, uh, this is this is empty and meaningless in terms of its value to my performance, right? I'm going to attribute something to it. So one of the simple ways that I go is, is don't drink to avoid dehydration. Drink to enhance performance. You know, mm-hmm. don't pace the race so that you don't blow up. Pace the race so you optimize your performance. So that everything is just flipped around. Oprah did a great show where she said to a bunch of women, she said, write down everything you don't want to have happen in your marriage. And she said, now, right next to that, everything that you do want to have happen, which is the exact opposite of that. It was just turning it around. And that's the sports psychology 101 principle, right? Not the nots, but the do's. And Mm -hmm. so when you teach that, it's a question of paying attention all the time. Because the athlete will say a word, and then you'll say, think about what you've just said. Is that valuable? Is that serving you? Is that really what you believe? Or are you saying it for some sort of shock value or some sort of need for, you know, for somebody to say, oh, that's not true. You're really much better than that. All right? Because those are the steps of the cost payoff thing, right? And the cost payoff I use all the time too is, is right? Are you trying to be validated? Are you trying to be justified? Are you trying to avoid responsibility by saying what you what you say? And then the next time when it comes around, you see the athlete start, hesitate, think about it, and then say what they what they want to say, right? So it really is one of those disciplines like anything else. It just needs to be practiced and practiced and practiced. So I tell people to keep a log of their pre-race internal dialogue. Because that's the internal dialogue that I have no control over. If they do something really, really well, I can say, what were you thinking? What were you saying to yourself? All right. And then if they go out onto the playing field and they are not saying that, that's when they don't show up, right? Now there's some other person informing that that movement or that that activity. And so when they start becoming aware that was a really good performance, I was saying this, 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 and this to myself. All right, now I catch myself pre-race or during a race saying something different to myself. So now you let them off the hook and they they let themselves off the hook. Firstly, they praise themselves for that recognition, all right, which is completely opposite. Elite athletes often curse themselves for a negative thought. They catch themselves and then they waste more time by beating themselves up because they had the negative thought, Right. Or whatever. I I prefer kind of the more neutral thing. And I like this whole, what do you need to be thinking to thrive, you know? Because with with most elite athletes, when you find out what their mental game is, it's pretty incredible how simplistic it is and how childlike it is. They are not nearly as complicated as age groupers that are really, really talented but haven't broken through. Again, the same thing. You ask an age grouper who's really, really broken through and you go, this person doesn't have anything special in the physical toolbox, right? But they are performers. They perform at the top of their level. And then you'll notice there's this similarity to internal dialogue. And a lot of it comes down to the psych concept of it. They have an internal locus of control. They are always finding solutions. I like that pattern, right? There's emotion. Emotion leads to a feeling. Feeling uh, leads to thoughts. Thoughts lead to choices. And then the choices are made or not made. They're made for them, right? So that to me is the is kind of the approach that I'm taking. I'm always listening. I'm always listening. 
And the beauty of it is in coaching, it doesn't matter how good your coaching is or how scientific it is or right on the money it is or how appropriate it is. If there's a hiccup in how the athlete is metabolizing that workout or that race information, it's not going to help. You'd rather have them do something that is really, really stupid that they believe in. The likelihood of their performance being good is is higher in that case than in the case where they uh, are doing the right thing, but they don't believe in it. Mm, yeah. Or they don't believe in themselves in it. Yes. Trust. And I mm-hmm. think that belief in self and and you were talking about getting to know yourself really well. And what I've discovered on my own path is that getting to know myself really well has allowed me to be more steadfast, right? In in who I am and how I move through the world. And I think with that comes this confidence. And I have this confidence of like, well, yeah, like, and that allows me to focus on what I want and not focus on what I don't want, which is what you were talking about at the beginning. Like, is you can go to, you know, don't drink because you're fearful of being dehydrated, drink to fuel your performance, right? What you don't want is being dehydrated. So don't focus on being dehydrated, focus on what you want. And that's going to streamline all the energy towards that direction of what you want. Um, As more and more, and I'm so happy to see this, and especially I would say like in the last five or 10 years, I mean, the mindset piece is, is, a common thing that we talk about now. And, and certainly it's a, it's a major piece of, of Yogi Triathlete. But with that comes vulnerability. And yeah. I mean, I know my take on this, but where does vulnerability play in an athlete's um, ability to open their mind and grow their mindset in the direction that they desire? This to me, there's two answers. I have a little quote that I put up here, and I notice it better because I didn't print it out. It says, whenever you cannot decide what to do, choose the action that represents a change. Now, I'm not a big guy in terms of change, right? I have learned that, you know, if you have a concept that is dominating an athlete's mind, right, Um Less or more of that concept, the concept still remains the core, right? So I'm weak in the heat. I don't perform well in the heat, right? Uh, And I do the – and I probably – every athlete that's listening to this that I've worked with will have say that I say this, right? If you have two parallel lines and you continue them into infinity, and the one is I suck in the heat, right – and the other one is I'm great in the heat, right? You're never going to get, you're always going to, if you stay on this one parallel line that says I suck in the heat, you're either going to suck less or you're going to suck more, but you're always going to be sucking. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a big believer in this concept of mentally replacing thoughts. You're never going to, you can only suppress thoughts that you've already had. You can never get rid of them, right? You can never... Go in there and re, remake this thought. You replace it with another thought and then you nurture and repeat and habituate that thought and it becomes the dominant thought. So when the winds of, of fatigue and the winds of effort start blowing, they have to blow a long way, a lot of sheets off the top before they get back to that old thought, right? And it's old stuff. It's called first creation, second creation stuff, right? We automatically become the way we are because of nature and nurture, 
when we're growing up. And then we get to a point where we go, wait a minute. I needed that when I was 11. I needed that when I was 16. But I don't need that in my life anymore now. And with consciousness, I can now replace that. I don't need to be quiet anymore because if I speak out, I'm not going to get slapped or whatever the case might be, right? I can recreate that. But it takes a lot of work. And like so many things, right? Uh, what I think in the 70s, they did a research paper on Olympic athletes and how how long, do, how much work do they do on their mental skills in a, in a static state, right? We know that endurance sports, every single thing that we do is actually training mental skills. Every time you're out there on the bike, whether it's disassociating in zone one and two or whether it's deeply associating in zone four and five, we are working on our mental skills, right? But that that concept of spending formalized time and that study showed that the best athletes were spending about 12 minutes a day working on that you know which is is not a lot right so we know that it's that it's important but we just need to do it so often so i've digressed a little bit here but it it comes down to that the keyhole activities that allow us to access who we want to be in any given moment right and I think that's why Kotler spoke about hacking the flow state and came up with those, those various levels that we need to reach, right? There must be risk involved, right? Uh, and then very, very interesting to me, you know, my business logo is grace, gratitude, and guts, as you would know, BJ. Um, uh, that gratitude part, coming out of a place of realizing that everything you do needs to be valuable for everybody else as well. That's why in the last chapter of my book, I speak about that, right? Where you go to the, the funeral exercise, right, from Covey, where you go to your funeral and you say, how are you going to be remembered, right? And a lot of elite athletes that I work with have this thought when they get into their 30s, right, where this seems so selfish, right? So many people have to do so much to allow me to do what I'm doing, you know, and for me to try and flip that on their head saying, wait, there's all those people around you that are supporting you in doing this, even your children and your spouse. What they are doing is they are getting as much out of what you are doing and your performances as you are getting out of them. And unless you can make peace with that in your own mind, you know, you're going to always have this fear of that, that what I'm doing is selfish as opposed to contributory. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was the thing that I was trying to get to is, is that, again, where we started, like, what am I doing that's valuable, right? By me being a better person in what I'm doing, whatever vehicle I've chosen to do that, all right, it makes the world a better place, all right? And so out of that comes Bandura's work from the 70s of self-efficacy. Right. And to me, that's exactly the same as what I'm talking about, thriving and being anti-fragile, that that's a higher level than being tough. And self-efficacy is a much higher level than being self-confident because self-confident is, again, back into the ego conversation and the embarrassment conversation and, you know, uh, self-indulgent conversation, whereas self-efficacy is simply saying, this is what I did in training. This is what I'm capable of doing in the race. What do I need to do and think and tell myself to do to be able to just access what I'm capable of? It's much, much simpler conversation, right? You're looking at your skills 
and you're looking at your process and you're looking at what does it take to execute that. So you go from a person who says, I completely lost focus in the middle of the race to a person who says, oh, it ran about mile thing. I misplaced my focus. I realized I misplaced my focus. I went, went and fetched it. I brought it back. I gave myself a pat on the back and off I went. And you see this in marathon running and Ironman all the time. The amateur has a bad patch and it's over. The pro has a bad patch, has a bad patch, has a bad patch, but has the mantra, right? You will have a bad patch. There's no such thing as a perfect race. And if you fit, you will get it back. It'll go, it'll pass, you know? And I've had athletes say to me in Boston Marathon where she ended up coming, I think, fifth or fourth in that race where she said, it was so cool. I had a bad patch at five miles. And I thought, great, I'm getting my first bad patch out of the way real early, you know, as opposed to saying, oh, it's going to be a long day. I've still got 18 miles to go, you know, and it's just the same thing. Just being aware of where your attention is, which is, as you said in the beginning, it's just meditation and mindfulness work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think also, BJ, I want you to ask your question, but um, being, I was thinking about like being vulnerable with ourselves, like really getting that look at like, oh, wow, this is the automatic thought that comes up and, but I can change that. Like I can be kind to myself. I can be graceful. I can have grace for myself and I can, I have the power to switch those perspectives. Um, we have the power to do that. I, I have seen it too many times. We have the power to shift our attitudes. I think the problem, and I don't know how this is in other cultures, right? But I think the problem, uh, in the Western culture, I'm a huge fan of the concept of vulnerability and its power, right? But I do think within the Western culture, there is still a lot of the old school belief that vulnerability equals weakness, right? And so vulnerability as a concept is extremely powerful, but education about what, what vulnerability means and what its value is, is, is very, very important. So my conversation about vulnerability often goes with that other model called what you know, you know, what you know, you don't know, and what you don't know, you don't know. <laughs> to me, that's the question that, that I ask when it comes to vulnerability, right? Where I say to the athlete, you will never know what you don't know, you don't know if you're not willing to be vulnerable. And as a result, without vulnerability, you will never move forward. Now, that gets their attention, right? Because I will sit with a classroom of 18-year-olds and I'll say to them, okay, in this room, and I might have, you know, a bunch of top coaches in the room and so on and so on. I'd say to them, how much of all the knowledge that exists in the world about triathlon is in this room right now? You know, and I'll draw the pie chart on the wall and I'll say that, you know, this is what we know we know. All right. And then when they start realizing this huge amount of stuff that we don't know that we don't know, and that's where all of our progress lies, then they get a little quieter and then they go, oh, wait a minute. So now I understand what vulnerability is. If I'm not open to knowing which part of that is admitting that I don't know, you know, then you get at the heart of vulnerability as opposed to saying, wait, I'm not vulnerable, I'm tough and I'm this and I'm that, you know? And it's an education thing more than it's, uh, I think most people are willing to be vulnerable. 
if they understood what it meant. Yeah, I think the okay, it's okay. And as coaches and you, you know, 40 years of experience, it's so it's really okay to say, I don't know if there's something you don't know. It's really important to to stress that versus just trying to fake it till you make it, right? Like kind of, kind of, and I've never seen that really work for me, faking it till you make it, quite honestly, because your true self is is the essence of, of who you are and what you stand for and what you believe in. And if you're always speaking from the heart, you're always going to have the truth and the truth should be at this moment, I don't know, but I will find out, you know, it's something I will get curious about. And the athlete you talked to who had, you know, the experience at five miles in has to be vulnerable. It has to be vulnerable to accept the current state, the current situation that athlete was in, in order to get to the end of the race. It doesn't matter what pace she was hitting in training <laughs> or in previous races, if she can't be there or he be there for that moment to make the decision. It means nothing what they've done before. Nothing. Yep. Yep. So again, back to the old philosophies, right? There's nobody out there. It's just what you put out there, right? So every person you meet and every situation that you meet, you are in, imbuing it with character and life and being, right? And and so with, without the vulnerability, you know, you start, I think it was Deepak Chopra and Wayne Dyer were sitting on the stage in Chicago and they were talking to each other, right? And Wayne said to Deepak, uh, can you wiggle your toe? And Deepak said, yes, I can wiggle my toe. And, and Wayne said, I can wiggle my toe too. So if we all won, why can't I wiggle your toe? You know, and then the conversation, <laughs> the conversation came from there, right? And, and so that is exactly it, is, is when we realize and accept the duality, right? Um, uh, I think it was... I don't know if it was Frost or Wordworth. I think it was Frost who said, we all sit in a circle and wonder while the thing sits in the middle and knows. So if you go from the standpoint is that there's massive duality within all of us and that it's natural. That was called Jung's thing, right? I don't know if you've seen some of these memes on Instagram at the moment, you know, where the guy says, you know, they'll show some black stallion or they'll show one a a beautiful black all-wheel drive vehicle, right? And they'll say, uh, the, the the quote is, you came to the darkness. I was born in the darkness, you know? <laughs> and and Jung says, and Jung says, we need to embrace our dark side, right? Because otherwise, again, without that vulnerability to embrace our dark side, without that honesty, we can never have the fullness of the light side, right? And philosophy 101 says there is no nothing without something. So it's always going to be, uh, you know, juxtaposed to that. And I've met a number of very successful athletes that have this level of, of dialogue with themselves, you know. They'll go from, what the hell am I doing out here, to saying, this is sublime. This is, this is, this is perfectly where I want to be. And I've had the same athletes say to me, after two different world records, I set this world record and every step was a grind and a painful process. And this world record was like, it was ridiculous. It was like mouth closed jogging and I broke the world record, you know. So being open to there's not this very narrow set of circumstances that you need to be able to perform. And sometimes as a performance coach, you say, 
my job is just to expand the parameters under which athletes are willing to perform. And more than even imbuing them with the fitness, it's like if you're willing to go when it's above 67 and still try and produce a performance, or if you're willing to go when you've been puking your guts out three minutes ago, you know, that's the difference, right? If you need it to be perfect and 55 degrees and no wind and a flat road, well, then it's really, really narrow, right? Because you know what's going to happen? A cow's going to step out in the way, you know, and you're going to have a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's re releasing that, releasing that control. Um, and I think this is a good time to switch into something that I think we've all seen athletes have trouble with. I also had trouble with it early on. Is this concept of going slow so that we can get faster? And so, um, you know, we've had a lot of coaches. I mean, all the coaches that we've had on on this have talked about this. But I love to get the unique articulation um, of each coach, coach as to you know how you describe that to people or or give them that foundational evidence underneath that you know will hopefully have some people buying into that by the end of the show today well you know you guys said at the beginning i've been around doing this st stuff more than four decades and and believe me i think the final physical frontier in performance in endurance performance the final physical frontier is probably pacing because pacing goes completely contrary to the flight or fight response, you know, and it's very, very difficult even for the female mind to be able to determine what kind of effort should I be putting out now in order to three, four hours down the line still be putting out a commensurate effort, right? So pacing is really, really hard. And I think this concept that you're talking about falls very close to that, right? So I can admit that even now, I still am, I wouldn't say I'm on the fence because I'm definitely not on the fence. Some days I'm left and some days I'm right, right? So when it comes to that question, I would say that when you're training for a marathon, right, there's a large neuromuscular component that supersedes the physiological component all right so we now know you run a 5k your heart rate is much higher than when you run a marathon right we can explain that physiologically right we know you know they, they're coming up with new ones every day but what are the factors that are involved in running economy we also know that we're not going to get much of a bigger vo2 max once we through our mid-20s if we've been training effectively and we've been training hard right so from that point onwards it all becomes about economy then you look at the ratio of how many exercise physiologists are certified every year in the world versus how many biomechanists are certified every year in the world. There's far more exercise physiologists, right? So we know a hell of a lot more about the engine than we know about the mechanics. In fact, we know more about the pitch and baseball mechanics than we know about running mechanics, all right? So... Bearing all of that in mind, what becomes very, very interesting is that idea of determining for individually for, for the athlete, right, what do they need in terms of that easy speed, right? So let me give you the conundrum, right? Most athletes are incapable 
at altitude as beginners to run in zone one. They can walk, they can ride their bike, and they can swim in zone one, but they can't really run in zone one. If you're talking about an average person who has a VO2 max, say, in the mid-30s, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that most elite athletes, in terms of running, are running too fast in their theoretical zone one. It is too hard on their joints and is not giving them any more value from a physiological standpoint. So they should be running a whole lot slower. You know, for somebody like Gwen to be running in zone one, she needs to work quite hard if it's a zone, right, to get up to that speed, but she can run a lot slower than that. So now you take it to what are these requirements in the marathon, right? Um, the great coaches will say to you, you need to run large sections of work at race pace, all right? So now you go, okay, the elite athlete can afford to be trotting around at six and a half to seven minute pace, all right? Because it is, you know, 40 to 60 seconds slower than their race pace, okay? But how many age groupers can actually run at a pace faster than the pace they are going to be racing for their easy runs? They can't. So if you look at what somebody's going to run off the bike in Ironman and you look at their pace of their long runs, they're not going to make they, – they, you see what I'm saying is, is mm -hmm. it's too fast. So it's a really hard question. Add to that the last bit I'll say is, is that, the, that the age group triathlete needs to run quite infrequently, right? They want some frequency, but they're still not going to run more than, say, six times a week. Pretty much five to seven times is where the age groupers are at. And most elite runners are running, you know, somewhere around about 10 to 13 times a week that they are running. Okay. So now when you go out as a triathlete and you know your legs can only handle three or four runs a week, right? You don't want to waste your time going slow with your mouth closed. You want to push it on a little bit, right? And so they tend to overrun it even more. And now the research has shown us also that everybody's kinematics are impaired when they get off the bike. A percentage of people larger with age groupers than with pros because of self-selection, but a percentage of people never get their kinematics back. So in other words, they're always running with an impaired running form off the bike. Mm. But everybody is impaired when they first get off the bike. And with triathletes, now they're running too fast when they first get off the bike. So they are burning so many anaerobic resources which are going to eat into their ability later on in the race. So you can see that there's a large mental and emotional component to how fast you run over and above what the value is. Mm -hmm. So what I propose always is that people do all their easy stuff fractionalized. In other words, just like you would do intervals for your threshold work and for your tempo work, so too you should do intervals for your endurance work. Because now you can raise the pace, but you're going to take a break and raise the pace and take a break. So you're going to get all those advantages that you would get from running slower, connective tissue, proliferation of, of uh, capillarization, all of those things are going to happen 
all right? But you can do it at a slightly faster pace, which now starts to resemble neuromuscularly the pace that you want to run at in a race. So is that like a, a run-walk? Yes, exactly. Run-walk, yeah, yeah. Mm. And build that strategy straight away into what their racing strategy is going to be at. You know, if you look at, at Galloway's history of, of run-walk stuff, right, people that – run 245 for the marathon running the whole way and then they do a walk run strategy and they run 220. So you go, okay, people say, well, I'm a three-hour marathoner. Surely I don't use walk run. No, no, wait a minute. You can now up your volume. You can up your mileage, all right? You can accelerate your recovery by doing walk run and there is zero research that says you lose anything by not running continuously, including the ability to fat burn. And now it answers a lot of your questions, right? Walk run is much easier to pace. You can run faster when you are running. All right, so neuromuscular now helps you as a 5K and a 10K runner. If you are around about that pace for the marathon, you're never going to run as well over a marathon distance as you would run if you ran the whole way. And statistically, we know what happens other side of 16, 18 miles, right? It all falls apart, right? So instead of, you know, getting to 18 miles and then sitting down at the side of the road or wandering aimlessly up the road at 20 to, you know, 25-minute mile pace, you can be walking at 15 to 17-minute mile pace for 30 seconds and running for nine and a half minutes. You're going to blow anybody with the same ability as you in the longer distances out of the water every single time. But it's oh, so our <laughs> ego. It's our ego that says, Bobby, well, come that's on. my tracker is going to say, you yes. know, this is what's he doing? He's walking and running. It's down to like 13 minute miles. And that just doesn't work. And you, and you don't understand. I wasn't able to run 18 miles to get to the next eight miles to see how fast I could go. Exactly. If I had a dime for everybody who said, you know, I was doing great up to 16 miles. Yeah, but you were in a 26-mile race. <laughs> right. You know, there are no prizes at the 16-mile mark for your pace, you know. <laughs> so I've had smart coaches with big groups making lots of money who had groups when they invited me to work with them that had groups called Run the Whole Way because this was the ego badge of honor, Right. I ran 10K the whole way. And I, one of my biggest tools in sports psychology is don't stop the dialogue. If you say to yourself, you suck, then say, and? So what are you going to do now? So keep the conversation going because eventually you'll talk to the end of that, mm -hmm. right? Now, it's the same way with, with the walk-run technology, right? So somebody says, yeah, I just I just want to run the whole way. And somebody else says, what did you run for the marathon? Oh, I went six hours. Oh, you know what? I walk ran the whole way and I ran four hours. Who's asking at the end of the marathon whether you walk ran or whether you ran the whole way? They want to know what your time was. I'll take four hours over six hours any time of the day, you know? So what was your pace out there? Oh, my walking pace was 25 minutes a mile and my running pace was 7.30 a mile. Wow, okay, so you walked a lot, you know? <laughs> but what people don't realize in walk-run, you're not standing still. Mm -hmm. You are moving for a tiny fraction of the time at a slower pace. 
but you're not standing still. So you can do all the math, but I just say to people, go and run for an hour. And then five days later, go run for an hour on a 6-1 interval and see how far you get and see how quick you recover. You know, and then go 9-1 and go. I mean, I had Gordo Byrne twice went 75 off the bike with walk run, right? And he said, and I said to him, you know, what interval did you use? He said, no, 9-1 works for me because that's what I recommended that he did. He said, if he finds if I go 10-1, then the fatigue accumulates too quickly. So, you know, it's it's really is an experiment of one. And I begged Ross Tucker and these guys to consider doing a research project on it because it'll be so mind-blowing in terms of compartment syndrome, in terms of recovery, in terms of stress fractures, in terms, terms of a myriad of things that walk running will solve, right? And it will not harm performance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got Ben, ben Canute, walk run all the time. He ran, you know, he wins 70.3 triathlons. He runs the whole way in races, but he never does a two-hour run. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. uh, it's just, uh, it makes complete sense. And in the triathlon community especially, yeah, because we're bigger individuals. We've got bigger upper bodies. We carry more muscle mass. You know, we need more muscle mass in our quads on the bike. We need more muscle mass in our lats and our, our pecs in the swim. So those athletes get impacted more. You know, if you go and look at it, the, you know, the, Olymp- the average Olympic female marathon runner, she weighs somewhere between 89 and 115 pounds. You know, they do not beat themselves up as much as the average person does, you know, and they are on, the, on that extreme. Yeah, and I feel... But you go to those tiny runners like the Japanese, they walk 40 miles a week. They run 185 miles a week, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they got a ton of world records and a ton of Olympic medals to prove it. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, yeah, wow. Um, actually, we're just, we're just starting to track our miles walking. We have a dog. So, I mean, we're just trying to see how much, in addition to the running that we do, how much we're actually walking during the week. Cause I want to see, Am I putting in really 30 mile weeks when I'm running like 15, 20 miles, but maybe I'm getting another 10 miles just from walking. I'm trying to paint that picture and see how that has translated so well in my career where I've been very fortunate not to have major injuries and I've been pretty consistent the entire time, but I've always had a dog. So I've always been walking. So I'm going to put this to the test a little bit, but I feel when you talk about specific runners, like the marathoners, you know, I want to categorize, you know, we got a big audience of triathletes here. And they're going to hear, okay, well, we've got this runner. And so I need to hit, you know, I need to dive into the six, six times a week running six to eight times a week. Um, swimmers, they see pool swimmers and they're like, okay, well, they're in the pool seven days a week. They're all working on drills. I need to do that. And they get, they get this, this belief system caught up in, and it's an individual sport when, you know, I feel, and I don't know what your thoughts are, but triathlon is really this, this combination of, of, of doling out, dishing out the efforts um, around the whole spectrum of what's keeping you healthy and strong. And what we found is, you know, the base of our work is a lot to do with the pool because it's load, uh, low load bearing. Um, you can build a good engine and then being able to sprinkle in the swims and the runs and being able to shift that momentum. You know, it's not always like this, but maybe the run is a little bit higher at times, but it keeps the body healthy and it keeps, um, this active recovery 
constantly going. So kind of like pulling in um, all three things or four things, you know, if you want to talk about mindset and nutrition as well, versus honing in on this one thing, this one runner or this one way that swimmers work in the pool. Do you find that too at your level? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we really go off the model that hill sprints in running help your biking, but biking massively helps your running. Now this, from a mechanical standpoint, there's disadvantages from doing all your endurance in the pool, right? But it's only in terms of the time that you are able to do those things. Biking is really, really bad mechanically for your run, all right? Because you can do so much of it. And so your body adapts in a blanketing fashion to the thing that you do most of, all right? And so I don't like rehabbing a runner on the bike. I'd much rather rehab a runner walking, do that contralateral motion, even though it's a strength motion, right? And running is four or five times harder than cycling or swimming, all right? And there's no support mechanism, right? The, the water is full body support. The bike is five, four to five contact points at all points in time, holding you in line, right? And there's not enough air resistance in running to form, to make you a compact runner unless you're running at 448 pace and almost nobody does, right? Where, where wind resistance starts to count massively, right? So um, being very aware that if you're using the bike and the swim, because that's where your endurance comes from as a triathlete, then the percentage of running that you're doing relative to all the work is less, but the intensity of that running can be more specific. So, so that's very good. But again, if you, when I start with an Ironman athlete in terms of the run, I first find out how much of the run did they actually walk. Mm. That's your start point. So if you can make the amount that they walked better walking, so you already improved their time, right? If you're going to make the amount that they can run, which is automatic if you walk run from the start, then they're going to go much, much deeper before they walk. All right, then, and you start viewing it holistically, as you said, you're not just thinking about physiology. All right, so when, when a guy's in the finishing shoot or a gal is in the finishing shoot and they're trying to get up and their knees are buckling, it's not because their heart rate is too high. It's not because they're not lucid. It's not because they don't have enough endurance. They have total and utter muscular failure. All right, so neurologically they shot. They like somebody who's just squatted the most amount that they can in their lives and they pass out or they get these massive neurological shakes, right, because they're doing power work. So that's what happens. You completely obliterated your, your muscle endurance, right, and then they can't get up. So they, they're willing to crawl because they're completely supported and they know there's the finishing line and they're not completely unconscious and out of it. They can remember it. So, you know, that points to if you did an hour run as an Ironman athlete and then did a gnarly four-and-a-half-hour hike, you get way more condition than if you did a two-and-a-half-hour run. Way more. You might have to say that again. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> <laughs> because it blows well, my up. Yeah, my favorite Ironman training is get up in the morning, go swim 4K, all right, go home, don't sit down. Right, preferably ride home, don't sit down, have something to eat, have something to drink, 
go out the door, ride your bike for four or five hours, come home, don't sit down, have something to eat and drink, maybe watch something on TV for a little bit, but stay standing, all right, then go out and run only for an hour and then go hike for two and a half hours. Now you're way better prepared for an Ironman than you would ever be if you did an hour run in the morning, an hour run in the evening, and some biking and some swimming in between. I love it. I love that workout. You too. I, I might have to write that one down. Yeah, I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna officially steal that one, Bobby. Oh my gosh, I feel like we're just starting to to dive in here. Um, that hour went by so fast. We're definitely going to ask you to come back because there's so many more things that we want to dive into. But I'm incredibly grateful the amount of information that you dropped here today. It's like it's it's such high quality, and so some people might be saying, "No, don't end the podcast now." But it's like take. Go back, listen to it, take what resonates, leave the rest, put things into action, don't end the conversation, and and then what, right? And then what are you going to do after you listen to this podcast? Um, so grateful for your time today. Uh, thank you so much. Is there any final words you want to leave the athletes? Well, maybe the final word is, is if you can generate this much enthusiasm for anything after 40 years, then you're definitely doing what you should be doing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> what um what uh how can people connect with you? You know, your book, you've got the the transformation program. Yeah, um, Bob, bobbymcgee.com uh, has pretty much everything out there and then there's a ton of stuff at Bobby McGee running even on on YouTube or on Instagram. And then you're holding a live Facebook. Don't you do that uh, weekly now or yeah, I have been doing that weekly. I'm probably going to slow that down a little bit. I'm focusing on a new project called Runform, where there's going to be a four-pillar program coming out in March, which is dynamic mobility work, strength and conditioning work, running drills, and um, strength stretching. So that's I'm just putting a lot of attention into that at the moment. So good, because as we know, it's not just one thing, and it's not just one form for everybody. It's getting to know who we are, getting to know how this body works and using that to the best of our ability. And you help people do that. Thank you. All right, guys. I really appreciate the time and uh, thanks for the invite. And it's good to see you both. Yeah, good to see you too, Bobby. Thank you so much. Mm